Yes, yes, y'all. Before we get to this week's episode of the Premium Pete I want to shout out everybody who checked out last week's episode with the one and only Who Kid. Let me tell you something. That dude is a crazy, uh, weird, uh, talented motherfucker. Okay, but I got a lot of love for him, and his stories are golden, special, and, 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 and so much more. Okay, so much more. Internet, let me tell you something. When I tell you to open up your Twitter app, open up your Instagram app, at Premium P, at Premium P Show, check the fuck in. Let me know where you're listening, okay? Let me know what episode you're rocking with. Man, we had so many people on the check-in. We had Jacksonville, we had Chicago, we had St. Louis, we had New Orleans, okay? Tokyo, Russia, Finland, okay? Who else? Uh, Finland's back again? What? Man, Melbourne back again? Internet's worldwide. I appreciate you. For those who know, the Premium P Show is a library. Actors, athletes. Artists, entrepreneurs, creatives, just people who have inspiring journeys. What we create is a library. And you go into the catalog, dig deep in the catalog, and find uh, find something you like. And tell a friend to tell a friend. Because every journey is inspiring, okay? And, and, and it just really just... Listen, Internet, okay? I appreciate that you really give a chance to hear an episode and see an episode and not where it has to be a big name and you still can listen to it. And keep an open mind. No matter what you do, always keep an open mind. I mean that, okay? And then don't doubt yourself. That too. Listen, this week's episode that we're getting into, we taped it a while ago. We had a problem with the audio, but we had them clean it up, make it sound real nice, and it's beautiful, and it's ready to go. The one and only, the legendary Bill Adler. I mean, listen, Bill Bill is just an amazing writer, uh, just, just an amazing creative, and his heyday time with Rush Management, Def Jam, and what and, and, and what he did with publishing and, and everything. Listen, I can't sit here and say one thing about Bill Adler. He's a jack of all trades, and one thing he is is talented. Internet. So let me tell you something. I also got to shout out KGB, the one and only Kether, uh, who uh, you know really has a lot of love for Bill Adler, and was like, "Yo, you got to do an episode with Bill Adler." And I was like, "Of course." And we finally got it done. It's finally coming out. The one and only. Let's not even take no more time, okay? Internet, I present to you the Bill Adler episode of the Premium Pete Show. Let's get to it. Cheer. Yo, what's up, y'all? This is Fat Man Scoop, the undisputed voice of the club, the two-time Grammy Award winner. Let me make this official for you. Fat Man Scoop, Cork McClan, Internet. It's time to go with my dude, Premium Pete. Let's get focused. Let's go, Internet. Let's turn up one time, Premium Pete. Come on, everybody, get set. Let's go. It's the next episode. It's the Premium Pete Show. News, interviews, all of the info. Listen up. It's the Premium Pete Show. If you want the scoop in the low, down low, listen. To the show, cause Milk said so. Fuck what you heard, better act like you know. It's the Premium Pete Show. Intense, welcome back to another episode of the Premium Pete Show. Sitting here with my friend, the OG, okay? The the legend. We, listen, okay? I don't care even if, I, I mean, I don't know if you like to be called the legend, but I'm going to call you one, okay? Well, I think OG's right. At least the O is right. Okay. Well, I mean, listen, uh, I said off air. This 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 hip hop game, this this life that we live in is a puzzle, and you are a piece of the puzzle. The one and only, the legendary Bill Adler is in the building. Uh oh, listen, trouble now. I'm I, it's, it's got to be. But f- first off, for people who know Bill Adler and for people who don't, okay, um, 
one thing I love about you is that besides being like a hip hop historian, right. besides being somebody who uh, was a first of his kind in, in early of the days, okay, I, I like to call you a dot connector, you know, uh, somebody who put the pieces together for a lot of things that and bands and groups that we really love. But but honestly, let's take it back to a young Bill Adler. Okay. What the fuck did you want to be when you grew up? I had no idea. I mean, it was, you know, when I first started thinking in just those terms, um, really the question wasn't what do I want to be, it was what don't I want to do. I was much clearer about that. And I was very, very uh, lucky to grow up during the 60s um, in in the hippie era. And, uh, you know, it was a different America then. And among other things, there were jobs mm-hmm. and you could make a living. And, uh, you know, that's important. And, and, I mean, things, in fact, were, were so good. There was so much opportunity that, um, you know, people would take a job and make a living and it would be a shitty job, but at least to pay the rent. And then, you know, as the OJ said, you know, in the early 70s, you know, you were living for the weekend. Sure, right? sure. I utterly rejected that idea. Mm. I mm. thought, I'm not taking a job. I'm not going to do work even to live, you know, if I don't like the work. Mm. At, at such a young age? Oh, yeah. But how, how what do you what do you credit that to? Do you, because I'm telling you, it, and mostly it was, it was, um, uh, just having grown up in that time, you know, there really was kind of a, a cultural rift widening. And, um, you know, the, the values of each of those cultures were very clear. You know, it seemed to me, I'm, I'm certainly not the only person who saw it that way. You know, my father grows up in the Depression, sure. right? And his father had been a small businessman who hadn't done very well. So my old man grows up in Jersey City, goes away to war, uh, comes back, and goes to NYU and gets a degree in accounting. Why? Because he figures if he's an accountant, the job is other people will make money. All he has to do is manage it. Sure, sure. Right? So he doesn't have to worry about being an entrepreneur and, and taking a risk, okay? I respect that. I respected it. Good, Dad. Guess what? In effect, he was too successful, at least for me, okay? We grew up. He bought a house in the suburbs. We were comfortable. I had all of that. By the time uh, I graduated from high school in 1969, I was done with the suburbs. I wasn't seduced by it. And, you know, I suppose uh, that makes me relatively rare, even amongst my cohorts and my friends and whatnot. You know, we there were 140 kids in my ninth grade class. And I think, you know, 110 of them still live within you know, five miles or 10 miles of where we all grew up, right? But I was not that guy. Uh, I didn't care about the suburbs. Part of it was, you know, I'm I'm born in Brooklyn. I grew up in Detroit. I go to school in the suburbs for high school. And certainly uh, by the time I'm in high school and probably earlier, I had a kind of a yearning to get back to New York Mm -hmm. right along. And so, um, you know, that that was definitive for me. So anyway, just being a hippie kid in Ann Arbor, uh, you know, being a, a music lover and a reader and, you know, on and on, um, you know, I, I was never bored. I didn't want to be bored. That was a key thing. So 
You know, I remember seeing a shrink when I was 19 and 20 years old. And but then, you wanted to do that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I wanted to. And really it was because, you know, the question I was asking myself was, you know, it's really two sides of the same coin. What do you want to do? But also, who are you? Or who am I? Mm. You know, because I believe to a certain extent our work defines us. Certainly, sure, sure. certainly if it's, it's work that we choose for ourselves, it's going to define us. And, with all, and, and you know, I didn't have a wonderful uh, answer for it when I started, 19 years old, 20 years old. But, you know, I'm seeing a shrink and, you know, I had, I had a glimmer of an idea about something I wanted to do. And there was a, uh, I had dropped out of college at the age of 19 because I didn't want to be in school anymore. Fuck school. Okay. And, <laughs> but I liked, I liked Ann Arbor. You know, my parents say to me, Billy, if you drop out of school, uh, we're not going to pay for you to live anymore. Mom, dad, not a problem. I'm working at a little record store. I'm making $80 a week. I'm paying $80 a month in rent. I'm good. See ya. Goodbye. <laughs> you Classic. know? So, so, you know, I'm on my own. I, you know, I've, I've got this little job. It's okay. You know, I'm happy. But I'm trying to think, what else am I going to do? And uh, I had this idea, music lover that I was, that maybe I could go work on a radio station, uh, the, the student radio station, even though I'd, I'd uh, dropped out of school itself. And, you know, I, I mentioned it to this shrink. And he wasn't a very talkative guy, but it's okay because what was great about, you know, psychotherapy was, and I think this is something they, they want for you, is that you can hear yourself talk. Sure, sure. You know, and, and, you know, what, when you're silent and when you're, you're uh, inside yourself, you know, you might not pay so much attention to it. But if you relax and start to speak about your feelings and you uh, enunciate them and the stuff comes back to you through your own ears, right, um, it's, it's revelatory. Oh, this is the way I feel. Mm. You know, and, and, and I hate to say it, but getting in touch with your feelings, understand your feelings, understanding your feelings, that's, you know, fairly crucial. Sure, sure. You know, that's big. And so, you know, I go in one week and I say, you know, I'm thinking uh, uh, I might want to do a radio show. And, uh, you know, but the shrink just listens to me. And I come back the next week and I say it again. And he still doesn't say anything. But by the third week, when I say three weeks in a row that I'm going to make a phone call. Or walk across the campus and see if I can get myself a little radio show. And I hadn't done it. I'd embarrassed myself. I wasn't going to go back yet another time and not have some uh, uh, sign of progress, not have made some kind of progress. And so I went to the, the to the radio station, and they said sure, and they gave me a slot at three o'clock in the morning. Fine, and that was sort of key for me. That was an awful lot of fun. That was the kind of work that I wanted to do, you know. And then within a, you know, a year or so of that, you know, I'm still working in a record store. And, um, uh, you know, mutual. Fr- I was friends with a, a, one of the other DJs at the radio station. And, he, and, and he'd been kind of enlisted to write for this hippie newspaper about music. Mm. And, he, and he wasn't a writer. And he just wanted to give it up. And so he told his editor at the paper, why don't you talk to Bill Adler? Now, in fact, you know, I always could write. And, you know. But how did, how did you even how did you even figure that? Meaning, I mean, how did you, you figure that you were good at, like, something like that? You know what? It was just, I, um, you know, I, I, I'll say this. I think there's a way to teach people how to write. Uh, but there's also such a, such a thing as talent. Mm-hmm. And... 
you know, I knew that I could write. I remember being in the sixth grade at the, in Detroit, and they, uh, uh, our English teacher uh, showed us this basic form about how to organize something that you're writing. And really, it's more for expository writing than creative writing, although I believe that any kind of writing is creative writing, in fact, you know, even if it's not fiction. Sure, sure. You know, so, uh, you know, and it was just, you know, the most standard and probably the most, you know, the, the corniest way to organize something. Here, there's a topic sentence. There's uh, Roman numeral one. There's capital letter A. There's capital letter B. Do you have something else to say besides? Well, then that's point one, point two, point three, and then Roman numeral two, and on and on and on, right? And they explain that in the course of, of you know, one class session. And I had it, and I could do that. I could follow that form, which really is, is, should be idiot-proof. But I, but I certainly knew that from the time I was, you know, sixth grade, really, I had an idea that I could write a little bit. Mm. And, you know, so, you know, years later, you know, at this point I'm, I'm 22, and uh, this pal of mine says, why don't you write about music for the hippie newspaper, the Ann Arbor Sun? And I said, okay, I'll give it a try. And I could do it. So, again, so I'm working on the radio, and I'm writing about music. Hustling, hustling. You get multiple, multiple gigs. And having fun. Mm. The end. Why would I ever do something I didn't like? Once I finally identify what I like and I can find a way to, to uh, make at least a little bit of money doing it and keep my nose above sure, water, sure. fuck it, I'm good. Mm. So, so you're, you're in Detroit. You're on the radio. You're writing stuff for the Ann Arbor Sun. Yeah. How many years pass by before you even think about what's next? Um, I left Ann Arbor on February 1st, 1976. Reason why? Because I was bored with Ann Arbor. You know, uh, I'd been there at that point since the fall of 1969. Uh, I really had kind of begun to know myself, discover myself, um... And that that was a great, great period to be in that place. And by the end of 75, uh, maybe even a little sooner, you know, the, the, the air was starting to go out of the blue, balloon a little bit in Ann Arbor. It had been such a vital place, and it had been this tremendous center both for radical politics and radical culture. And that stuff was tremendously impressive to me, uh, influential to me. And... Yet, um, you know, it's it's a bunch of younger kids coming in, and I felt like I'd spent enough time in Ann Arbor, and I remained um, interested in New York. And, sorry, I'm burping, Kirsten. <laughs> You're going to have to edit this out. Okay. So, um... You remain in Detroit? You know, yeah, so I'm, so I'm in Ann Arbor, and I'm, um, you know, ultimately... Looking towards New York, and um, you know, I was um, dubious about my ability to move there at that point and to be able to find my footing and make a life for myself. And so I did a little bit of research, and um, I uh, I had a friend. You know, my my high school class was uh, over eleven hundred kids. Boy, this was the baby boom. And uh, of those 1,100 kids, I don't think more than half a dozen went to Ivy League colleges, but I was friends with one pal of mine, and he ended up at Yale. And I had another friend who was um, at the Berkeley College of Music in Boston, 
And so I stopped off in New Haven and made my way to Boston in the summer or fall of 1975 as a way of checking out, you know, Boston, Massachusetts. And I knew nothing about it. I had no family roots there. I had no idea about, you know, the local culture. You know, uh, the Boston Red Sox meant nothing to me. I didn't hate them. But what you know? Who cares? Sure. You know, I mean, locally there were religion. You know, in in Detroit, who, you know, um, and really all I knew about you know New England was that you know there'd been a, an American Revolution fought there two hundred years sure. earlier. So okay, so uh, you know, I, I I walked around and I uh, informed myself a little bit. Now the basis of my research, I I I, I saw well they have. Uh, two daily newspapers. They have two alternative weeklies or, or hippie newspapers. They have two, uh, let's say, freeform radio stations. And the quality of the work being there wasn't intimidating to me. The quality of the work, truthfully to me, seemed kind of low. And so I thought to myself, well, if, if this is the standard, I should be able to move to Boston and find some work for myself. It, it, you know, bottom line, it wasn't as scary as New York. And so, okay. So I moved to Boston, as I said, in February of 1976. And during the course of that period, you know, I, in fact, I was able, you know, I, I worked on the radio <clears throat> a little bit on this radio station, WBCN. Um, and then um, starting in, starting uh, late in 1977, I think, I started freelancing Maybe it was even uh, by by seventy uh, six. I started freelancing to the Boston Herald, which was the number two daily newspaper sure, there. Sure, sure. And then I got hired full time there in April of nineteen seventy eight, and I worked, <clears throat> um, I worked there for for two years until April of nineteen eighty, and you know I was the music critic, the pop music critic, and it was a wonderful period. But then, you know, I was bored of Boston. By that time, I'd been in Boston. <clears throat> And I'd been in Boston for uh, four years, and I'd never been seduced by it. There'd never been a period when I thought to myself, oh, uh, you know, I'm going to settle down here. Boston is really, you know, nirvana. And, oh, you know, I still had New York in mind. And so, you know, having, you know, uh, done some interesting things and, and built up my resume a little bit, I moved to New York in July of 1980. And then I starved for four years, basically freelancing here in the city, uh, until I got a job with Russell Simmons in 1984. But you see, something like that is, how did you even meet Russell? Okay. How did that even happen? Because, for again, for, for people you know listening that know of you, obviously they know some of this or they're hearing it. People who don't know you, you, you signed up and became like, uh, what, director of... Uh, publicity. Publicity. Yeah. Uh, for Rush Management, Def Jam, you know, records, like, you know, the whole, th that was not only a label, that was also an artist management with Rush Management, right? Right. How did you even meet Russell to even be put on there? Um, <laughs> it's kind of a funny story, you know, so, you know, during that early period, you know, for the first four years, I'm in, I'm in New York, I was freelancing as a writer, a music writer mostly. And so I wrote for Rolling Stone, I wrote for the New York Daily News, I wrote for um, People Magazine and the Village Voice. And, you know, I was basically, you know, if, if luckily, you know, uh, I was in love with a wonderful woman and she made some money. And so, you know, we, we basically lived on what she earned. 
And even so, it was it was ridiculous. And you know, I, I finally decided. You know, she held you down. Absolutely. And I'm going to say a word about marriage right now. You know, to the hip hop generation, fellas, you perform a calculus in your mind, and you're dubious about marriage, and you wonder, what am I giving up? You know, if I if I get married, you know, I'm going to be boxed in in a bunch of ways, and blah blah blah. That's okay. I'm going to stay solo. I think that's fairly typical, that kind of thinking. That has not been my experience, and I just want to suggest to anybody listening, especially a guy, especially a hip-hop era guy who is not married, um, the possibility of one plus one equaling three. You don't lose something getting married. You gain something. You Mm -hmm. gain a partner, a life partner, and it's gigantic. That's been my experience. So with that commercial for marriage done. Let me just say that, you know, my, my wife, my wife, you know, held me down. And, um, in, you know, I started writing for the daily news before, you know, I, in 1980. And, um, one of the first stories I did for them was, this, was, this, uh, about this, this rapper out of Harlem named Curtis Blow, mm-hmm. who had a national hit with a song called the breaks. And I'd heard of Kurt when I was still in Boston because the previous year, uh, uh, in December of 1979, he put out his first single, and it was called Christmas Rappin'. And it was, you know, a remarkable hit. I mean, it was a great little record, but also, you know, rap was so new at the time. Really, the only thing that had broken through prior to, at least at least nationally, was the Sugar Hill Gang with Rapper's mm-hmm. Delight mm-hmm. in the fall of 79. And... So this record comes out, this Christmas record comes out, and it was such a, a a knockout, it was such a sensation that the local black radio station, WILD, was still playing it in February. Mm. So when I moved to New York, and, and, and you know, I'm writing for the Daily News, and it's the fall of 1980 now. And by the way, let me, let me just hit this one note, because I pay attention to these things. This next year, 2019, will be the 40th anniversary of the release of Curtis Blow's Christmas mm. Rapping. Mm. Not 30 years, 40 years. So, wow. you know, hip-hop's been around for a minute. You know that, And that's just hip-hop on record. Of course, you know, there, there's half a dozen years before the first records when hip-hop was really uh, percolating here in the city. But in terms of, you know, the face turned to the rest of the world, it goes back 40 years next year. Anyway, so... Um, I talked to my editors at the at the Daily News and said, you know, this this local guy has a national hit with this new rap stuff. And they said, go ahead and talk to him. So I wrote a story about Kurt. And in the the process, I met his producers, Robert Ford and J.B. Moore. And they talked to me about Kurt's manager, this guy named Russell Simmons. And I don't think I met Russ then, but I heard about him. So now fast forward to oh, early in 1983. And I was writing for People magazine, and I'm still interested in rap and hip-hop. And I thought to myself, I, I went to my editor, and I pitched him on the idea of um, uh, just kind of a, 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 um, a genre story about this rap and this hip-hop stuff. I didn't, you know, it was just going to uh, be kind of broad strokes, what's going on in the scene. I didn't have much focus to it. And somehow this guy didn't care, and he said, go ahead and write it. And I had a... a, a a whim, I thought to myself, well, you know, let me get in touch with this guy, Russell Simmons. Uh, maybe he'll 
help get me deeper into the culture and I'll write a better story. So I called Russ and we went out and it turned out to be one of the greatest nights of my life and one of the most influential lights and nights in my life. For Russell, it was just, you know, whatever. It was an every day. Yeah. It was every single day he lived like this. But at the time, you know, Russ already had his artist management firm and he did a variety of different things. So it wasn't just artist management, but he did record promo too. And on this night, he was working for Fever Records um, out of the Bronx and uh, they had a a single by an artist named Sweet G called Games Female Females Play, I think is what it was, mm-hmm. Sweet G. And Russ was promoting it to nightclubs, not to radio. And so we went around to, I don't know, six different nightclubs in the course of a night. And every everywhere we went, Russell was ushered in with a flourish beyond the velvet rope. <laughs> You know, and we went straight to the DJ booth and he'd get in the DJ's ear and he'd hand the DJ a, a, a copy of the record and schmooze him up a little bit and we'd split and we'd go to the other place, right? And the range of clubs was fairly remarkable because that's the way nightclubs are. You know, they cater to different audiences. But Russell was, um, shit, what's the word? Russell was down by law mm. wherever he went. That was the expression then. He was down by law. And, you know, we end up, our second to last stop was at the Roxy. and that Legendary. Was legendary. Every place we went was legendary. We went to the Paradise Garage that night. Oh, my God. We, you know, so we go to the Paradise Garage, and then we go to the Roxy, and that's fairly remarkable. And by this time, it's eh, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning. Fine. Now it's time to head back uptown, and we go to Disco Fever. Mm. And Disco Fever was astonishing and i don't know how uh, familiar folks might be with disco fever these days but you know it was a, an after hours nightclub in the bronx basically within spitting distance of yankee stadium and um it was really kind of a world unto itself it wasn't just that you could go there and dance uh you know they they would put on uh, events and contests and whatnot and it was this you know tremendously vital after our spot in the Bronx. And, you know, we hung out there until daylight and, you know, had our fun and listened to music and did our drugs and whatnot. And, you know, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, struggled out into the street at about eight o'clock in the morning. And, you know, as I headed back downtown, I knew then, you know, whatever my half-assed idea about the story, I said to myself, I'm going to write about Disco Fever for People magazine. And I, I came back and I told my editor and he said, fine, great, mm-hmm. go ahead and write it. And that's what I wrote. Okay, so that's the spring of 1983. A year later, it's 1984. It's an election year. Ronald fucking Reagan is running again for president. I can't pretend to care about him. In fact, I want him out of office. Sure. Here's my brilliant idea. I'm going to write an anti-Reagan rap and I'm going to give it to Curtis Blow, and Kurt's going to record it, and we're going to wrap wrap Ronald Reagan out of office. Brilliant, right? (laughs) You know how that turned out, okay? But in the course of it, I I got in touch with Russ again because Russ managed Kurt. And, uh, you know, I I, uh, read him my lyrics. I thought, (laughs) I don't know if he thought very much of my lyrics, but he said, you know, what else do you do? And and this is, by the way, this is when Russell had, you know, was working out of two offices at 1133 Broadway. 
And uh, he had one full-time employee, Miss Heidi Smith. That was his executive assistant. And he had, you know, people like Tony Rome taking the artist out out on the road in the weekend. But it wasn't, you know, a a big organization. And um, he... uh, we got to talking, he says, what else do you do? And I, and I told him I was writing, and I don't know how interesting that was to him. But I also said that, um, is, is this too much detail? No. Uh, this is re- So um, he, uh, we haven't got to the hip-hop area yet. Sorry. Right. We sort of had. So so anyway, I'm old. I'm fucking old. You know, we could do no, this for hours. Old. Anyway, so so um, he says, what else, what else do you do? And it so happens, you know, once I'd got to New York, um, you know, John Lennon, dies. I, 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 um, I moved to New York in July of 1980. Lennon is shot and killed in December of 1980. Mm. And very shortly thereafter, I met a guy named Steve Gebhardt who had made movies with John and Yoko um, in, the, in the late 60s and early 70s. And it's not like his name went on it, but he was an actual filmmaker. John and Yoko were not. Uh, they were, uh, you know, tremendously creative, but they, they didn't know how to make a film. Gebhardt made the films, and John and Yoko put their names on it. So Gebhardt and I met, and he, said, he says, Bill, you're a writer, and you know something about music. I want to make a movie. Let's make a movie about John Lennon now that he's dead. Let's make a documentary movie. So I'd been working with Gebhardt, you know, to get this movie off the ground, and, and nothing would ever happen with it, of course, because, you know, uh, you know if Yoko didn't run it, Whatever it was, it wasn't going to happen. And, of course, she hated Gebhardt for, I, I think, no very good reason. You know, just, be, you know, whatever, because, because she couldn't run him. But, sure, also, sure. So, but also, you know, did she need to work with Steve Gebhardt to make a movie about her, her ex-husband? No, she did not. Well, I didn't understand it at the time, and so I was working away on this film that would never be made. But I mentioned it to Russell, and he perked right up, and he says, you know what? He says, I want to make movies with my artists eventually. And then he flattered me into the job. He says, I can't believe somebody as smart as you doesn't have a job. Why don't you come work with me? <laughs> and I said, okay. And that's how it started. You know, I, I, I remember hearing you say that uh, you worked for the first six months. For free. For free for Russell Simmons. That's true. Um, in this day and age, people, some people have uh, you know, their thoughts about it. Some people don't. Not meaning you, meaning in general. I've heard many people say in the beginning or wanting to get known or wanting to get seen, just just take the opportunity. Why did you do that at that time? Because Russell was fascinating to me. You know, when I started to work with him, it just confirmed what I already felt. But, you know, Russell then and... and you know, I don't know about now. Finally, I, I I don't know what's going on with Russ, but you know, for oh, let's just say the 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 first sixty years of his life, the years you know from from you know uh, twenty to sixty, he went out every single night of his life, and it's because he loves the scene. But in effect, he was also working. You know, Russell combined work and pleasure all the time, and and in that way, you know, uh, we're sort of the same kind of person. He wasn't going to do work that he didn't want to do, right? So when I start working with Russ, you know, uh, at first, you know, I thought, well, I have to go out with him every night because he's going at uh, every night. And so I did it for like two weeks. And what I discovered was invariably he was the most interesting person in the room, no matter what the room was. 
And I was married. And I didn't want to work around the clock. And so I told him one day, I said, Russell, look, I'm going to reinvent the wheel here. I said, tomorrow morning, I'm coming to work at about 9 o'clock, and I'll work until 6 or 7 o'clock, and then I'm going to go home and have dinner with my wife and sleep, and then the next day, the very next day, we'll do it all over again. You know, that was my idea. And Russell doesn't care. He's got friends wherever he goes, you know? So really, I consoled myself. Do I really need to spend 16 hours a day with this guy? No. Eight, nine, ten hours a day is enough, is enough. You know, I'll be energized and inspired by that, and then guess what? I can have a life besides. And I'll tell you something. That's sort of why, you know, I'm not Lior Cohen, because Lior, Lior comes along six months later, and not a problem. You know, first, I mean, you know, I'm older than everybody else. You know, Lior's not married. Russell's not married. Uh, and and Lior was content to go out every night with Russell for sure, forever, <laughs> And, you know, he's, he's got that kind of drive, just like Russell, which is why they're both zillionaires not, uh, now, and I'm not. Yeah. But guess what? It's fine with me. What was your first impression of Leo? <laughs> you know, Leo, <laughs> um, you know, there was a kind of a goofiness to Leo to begin with. You know, he speaks in, an, in, a, in a kind of an odd way, and I'm not sure why it is. You know, he's born in America, but he spends some of his early time in Israel, and he learns Hebrew there. His parents are both Israeli. And, um, you know, the, the, his, his uh, speech was kind of inflected by, you know, Hebrew. Uh, I'm not sure what all else. You know, there was a period when uh, he had speech therapy as a youngster. And so, um, you know, he speaks very distinctly, but there's, there's a kind of an oddness maybe to the rhythm of it. And... Um, he was clowned early on. I mean, he took a, a very important role very early on. Uh, you know, he was capable, and that was clear very, very uh, early on. You know, so he, he starts out taking Run DMC on the road, uh, and then he's running, you know, he's taking all the groups on the road and blah, blah, blah. You know, certainly by, by 86, you know, if, if Lior starts working there in, in December of 1984, by 1986, Russell has given him half the company, half of Rush Productions slash Rush Artist Management, because he's doing all the work. Mm. You know, so he's tremendously capable. But he was, uh, you know, he was, you know, Run DMC would clown him. You know, they they referred to him as Geralama. DMC called him Geralama because he struck him as like half giraffe and half llama, mm. right? <laughs> and so, you know, there was that. Uh, and then also, in these early days. He was, uh, his job really was to be a big, stiff prick. Um, you know, Russell was almost too sweet. And as Lior tells it himself, Russell was disinclined to say no, whatever it was, if there was any conflict, you know. Uh, Lior didn't mind sending no, uh, saying no. So, you know, he stepped into this role as the bad guy, the bad cop. But in fact, it suited him. And, you know, so, you know, in those very early years, it was kind of hard to love him. Because he screamed a lot. He was obnoxious. And, you know, uh, I made my peace with him more or less, and I worked with him. I never would have chosen to work with him. I stayed on the job because of Russell. Lior could kiss my ass. Mm. But I'll say this. He's evolved, and he's matured, and I'm, I'm still friends with him, and I love him. And, you know, we worked together, you know, very, very recently, you know, as of I think it was May of this year, uh, he was called upon to 
um, give the keynote speech at the South by Southwest Music Conference. And, you know, the thing about Lee, still all these years later, for everything that he's accomplished, uh, he's, he's not uh, known as a guy who's going to get up in front of a room full of people and give a speech. You know, in a, in a meeting, in an office meeting with half a dozen people sitting around a table, he's going to run that meeting and blaze and be magnificent. In a room full of 700 people, publicly, he's not that confident. So he called me in to help him write a speech and also to help him rehearse the speech so that he would become comfortable enough to kill it. And he did. I think he did. But, you know, that's just a measure of, you know, the fact that we have this ongoing friendship and working relationship. You know, you uh, mentioned that you work for free. <clears throat> Excuse me. You work for free for uh, Russell for the first six months. Right. How did you eventually uh, convince to get paid? Is that something you had to bring up or? or... Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I don't remember the specific, uh, specifics of it. But, you know, I mean, finally, you know, he managed to cough up a little bit of dough. Mm. So good, and what I like is you. It's like so good. I, what, what I like is you also, uh, like you said, re, you reinvented the wheel, and and then you became, uh, you know, director of public. Uh, public. No, no, no. I did that very early. I, I told Russell that was one of the things is is, uh, you know, when he says come work with me, it's not like he had an idea about what particularly I was going to do. do. Yeah, you made it up. He didn't have, right. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't have any idea. I had to tell him. You know, he would have been, been content if I'd been kind of a junior version of him, you know, which is to say, you know, uh, 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 an entrepreneur, you know, I just have my, my feelers out there and I'm going to check out opportunities and I'm going to create something here and create something there and bring it to Russell and he's going to make sure that it happens and everybody makes money. You know, so that's, that's Russell. It turns out, you know, Lior is very similar in a way. You know, um, Andre Harrell was like that. You know, the, the people that we work with. I wasn't that guy. I didn't feel, you know, I said, you know, by that time, you know, I'd been a professional journalist for, you know, almost a dozen years. And um, I'd spoken to enough music publicists. And I and I saw that, uh, you know, Russell ha- Russell's managing a dozen acts and, uh, you know, he has to rely to the extent that, you know, he can rely on anybody. There are, you know, publicists at the various record labels, but uh, they're not doing much of a job as far as I can tell. So I said to Russell, I said, look, you don't have a publicist here. I'm going to do that for you. What does Russell care? He says, okay, go ahead and do it. Mm. That's how hard it was. What were the acts that uh, were on the label at that time? Well, in 84, so there were... Um, you know, Run DMC had been begun recording in 83. Houdini had been recording, uh, started recording in 82. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde uh, were recording as of 82, I think. Uh, we had Spider D and Sparky D. We had Captain Rock. We had, uh, I'm trying to think who all else, you know, we worked with then. Um, but then as of 84, before the year was out, you know, so I start working there in June of 84 in September of '84, uh, Def Jam puts out the first Def uh, puts out the first LL Cool J single, DJ 001, and then a month later, there's the first Be- oh the first Beastie Boys single. Mm. Okay, and then as time went on, so you know, uh, you know, before you know, I worked there between 1984 and 1990. So during that period, you know, uh, Def Jam grows and prospers and. Uh, you know, it's LL, 
and the Beastie Boys and Slick Rick and Third Base and Public Enemy and EPMD. No, EPMD no? didn't record for Def Jam then. EPMD started out recording, uh, you know, when we started managing them, they recorded for Sleeping Bag. Okay. But, you know, on the management side, we worked with um, uh, Eric B. and Rakim, EPMD, Big Daddy Kane, De La Soul, mm. uh, the Jungle Brothers briefly. Mm. Will Smith and uh, huh? Jazzy, Jazzy Jeff. Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh uh, Prince. And this, you know, these are very early. I mean, it's really so much to, to Russ's credit and to Lior's too. That you know, these were brand new acts, and Russell, you know, was was just you know brilliant. You know, he, his idea was, he said, we don't. He says we don't sell records; we build artists. Mm. And you know, it's it's actually it it sounds soulful as hell. And it's not to say that Russ isn't soulful; he is, but it's also a, a, a much smarter way to go money wise. Okay, if all you care about is making a record, you're fucked up. You know, in, in effect, you have to, you know, reinvent the artist every single time. You know, if you've got an artist management perspective, if you've got an artist-oriented perspective, so you build the artist, and then there's a sense of anticipation. What's he going to do next? You know, and you make more money that way mm-hmm. if you build artists rather than just make records. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we start working, you know, Slick Rick, come on. You know, he puts out one record in the summer of 1985, and he's just second billed to Dougie Fresh. You know, he's MC Ricky D with Lottie Dottie in the show. And, um, you know, it, that record was electrifying. If you hear it today, young people, you're going to hear it and get happy, right? <laughs> and, and, but, but, you know, who thinks to, to, to sign MC Ricky D? <clears throat> Russell and Lior did. Lior really went after him. Mm. And we signed him, I think, by 86, and it took a couple years to put out the first album. But it was, it was Def Jam's vision for Ricky that was definitive. You know, Jazzy Jeff, and, you, know, you know, LL Cool J. You know, all the credit in the world to Rick Rubin and, and to Adam Horvitz of the Beastie to bring Boys. Him, to bring him on? Yeah, you know, he was a 16-year-old kid who'd made a demo at home in St. Albans, Queens. And he sent it around to a bunch of the record labels that were making hits then. And Horowitz, you know, he sends it to Rick Rubin in his, ho- in his um, hotel room, in his dorm room at NYU. Mm-hmm. And it lands in a, a, a basket in Rick's room. And he's not listening to it because Rick's got other work, uh, other work, but Horowitz is hanging out and basically spending a lot of time with Rick at, at, at that time. And so he fishes a cassette out of a basket and listens to it. And it's this kid who's calling himself LL Cool J. And he says to Rick, you know, this kid has got something. One thing leads to another and we sign him up. He's 16 fucking years old. Mm, mm. First, 16. For- Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. He puts out one single you know, he's he, he by that time he's recording credit to Barry Weiss as I think about it mm-hmm. at Jive Records. Good, they've signed him up. Do they need management? Okay, we're going to manage him. Will was eighteen years old then, so very very early on we made uh, an investment in these artists as artists, and it paid off. Mm. First impression of L.O. Kujay. <laughs> um, he was um, he was aggressive, you know, and he was basically fearless. And you know, I can remember when we were still at eleven thirty three Broadway. Um, you know, he came into the office and he got into a snapping battle with Run, 
<laughs> and you know they they had they had a complicated relationship. You know there was there was going to be a lot of mutual respect, but there was going to be a, a, a tremendous amount of competition as well. So the two of them started snapping on each other, and you know Al held his own, mm. and so you know that's pretty impressive. You know he was um, thin then, skinny assed. You know he wasn't pumped up. Um, I, I'd say that his um, his kind of creative courage. Uh, you you worried about you know could he back up? Sure. You know. Sure. His his aggressiveness. Luckily, as I think about it, you know, um, he was working with um, Cut Creator. Mm-hmm. Cut Creator was a big stocky guy, former football player. So if LL, you know, tried to cash a check that his ass couldn't, you know, I, I can't remember that that cliche. But if if L got himself with in trouble with his mouth, and he was about to get a punch in the fucking face, you could count on on Cut Creator to make sure it didn't go down like that. Mm-hmm. The protector. Right. And then, you know, LL started working out, and all of a sudden, you know, he, in effect, he became, you know, he just became big himself. Did you did you see at that moment that he could be the star he is today? Yeah, he had, you know, it, I, I'm not going to pretend to say that that uh, I signed him. I didn't. You know, that's to, that's to Horvitz's credit and to, to Rick Rubin's credit. Um, but he... Um, he was just tremendously charismatic. Uh, right away, he was very confident on stage, and he was very confident in terms of writing rhymes and then rapping. You know, I mean, by the time... So if, if he's only 16 when we start working with him, um, you know, by that time, he'd been uh, uh, thinking of himself as a rapper, you know, for five or six years. You know, he hears rappers delight. He's 11 years old. He flips. Mm. As just a you know just a kid growing up in St Albans, he says that's what I want to do. So in in effect, he was practiced by the time he got to us as a sixteen year old. And then when he gets on stage, oh my God, these women went nuts for him because he had that, ladies love Cool J. Guess what? He had that going for himself as well. He was very good looking. And he would, he would, you know, unlike most rappers at the time, he wasn't just going to write a song, you know, beating his chest about what a great rapper he is. He's going to write a song, uh, you know, addressed. He's going to write rap love songs very early on. And, you know, I, I think it was brave of him to do that. And guess what? The, the females were listening mm. and they loved him. And there's a sequence of photos that Harry Allen shot of LL Cool J, one of his very first shows. And uh, you see him on stage, and it's as vivid uh, uh, a kind of a demonstration of magnetism. People talk about, you know, animal magnetism sure, or, sure. or charisma. And, you know, you see LL on stage, and he's got a, a copy of his first single in his hand. And he holds it back at first. And the image is, you know, this, this crowd of women. The, the stage is, is, the lip of the stage is crowded by these women. And they, they're kind of reaching towards him as he holds the album back. And then he, he, in the next frame, he holds it to him. And again, they're just magnetized by him. He had that going. And the, the most notable part of it, as a matter of fact, of that night was that Jekyll and Hyde were on the bill as well. And they were established by that time. And they uh, uh, did not do as well 
at that event. And Andre Harrell says he saw the way that LL Cool J killed it at that show in the fall of 1985. And he said to himself, you know what? I'm not built for this anymore. Mm. I'm going to go into, you know, into the executive ranks. I'm going to do a different kind of work because I don't have it like LL Cool J. Mm. Listen, on that note, let's take a quick break. We're sitting here going down the journey, the, uh, the historian. Oh, sure. It, we made it all the way to 1985. That's big. I mean, listen, we still got some things to go over. Sitting here with the one and only, the legendary Bill Adler. Don't go nowhere. We'll be right back. Cheers. Yo, yo, what's up? This is me, DMC, in the place to be. And y'all know how it goes. The only place for DMC to ever be is right here on the Premium Pete Shows. Internet, and we're back. Sitting here with Bill Adler. Let me tell you, uh, <laughs> the journey is amazing, right? You, all your life, I feel like you set yourself up to be happy, to do what you love. Right. And when you didn't like what you, you know you were doing, you got bored of it. You moved to something else that that made you fall in love again. Right. You're in the midst of Def Jam, director of publicity. You, you you're a man of many hats. You're doing a bunch of shit over there. Okay. Were you happy? Yeah, I was happy until I wasn't happy. Mm. You know, I I, I worked there for. Uh, just about six years, and uh, you know we'd had astonishing success. We went from one success to another without a bump, really. I mean, you know, uh, the Beastie Boys. You know, we we put out um, uh, "License to Ill." It goes triple platinum, um, and then a year. You know, we you know the Beastie Boys were the Beatles in 1987 in terms of pop music, and in '88 they're pissed off at uh, Russ and Rick. And they leave the label. That should have been the end of things. But it wasn't. We just roared on without the Beastie Boys. So, you know, it's, it's a great, great period. And then, uh, you know, given how much success we'd had, you know, after six years, I wanted to... <laughs> it's not just that I wanted a raise from Russ. I think I asked him for... You know, a piece of the company, some small piece of the company. It had grown so much. I'd been, you know, on the ground. You've been a part of sure. I'd been a part of it. Give me a piece. I'm not saying retroactively. Give me a piece going forward. He wouldn't even consider it. And so I left, you know. You know, off, off air, I was, we, we were talking about this, and, and I was just giving you credit because I feel like not everybody fights for themselves. And when they do, sometimes it's hard for the reality to set in. Meaning, like, it's either, okay, so now your decision was either you get the fuck up out of there or you stay. Right. And you got out. And not a lot of people would do that. Did you even know what the fuck you were going to do after that? Yeah, I had an idea. I thought, well, I'll start my own company, which is what I did. Mm-hmm. And that company is? <laughs> uh, the company was called Rhyme and Reason. And uh, I was in business for. A year, a calendar year, and then uh, Chris Blackwell hired me to work as the publicist at Island Records, and I did that for a calendar year and and, and, and got fired. Wait, wait, you got fired? Well, yeah. How I, could Bill Adler get fired? You know what? I, I, truthfully, I did not care as much about uh, working for Island and its artists as I had about working the uh, yeah, and and you know, so I I don't know that I did you know a great job. You know, they were probably I wasn't. Yeah, you can say I was fired, and um, 
you know, I don't know that they were wrong. Mm. So, you know, okay. And then I, w- I went into business for myself again, and I, I kind of floundered around. But, you know, I've always found, um, you know, that was the last time. <laughs> the end of the calendar year, 1992, is the last time I worked for anybody else, I think, mm. you know, at least full time. I've worked for myself always since then. And I've managed to find, you know, one project or another that's uh, compelling to me. And boom. In this day and age, so many people want to work for themselves. Yeah. But it's not fucking easy. No. And you are the living testament of how tough it is. What would you say is the proudest moment you are for, uh, for not working with, you know, for a boss? And then what, what is, like, what, what's your thoughts looking back on this now? Wait, tell me again. What, what's the no, question? No, no, I'm saying, what's your thoughts on looking back? So many people want to be an entrepreneur now. It's like a trendy thing. Right, they right. want to work for themselves. Yeah, yeah. But it's not easy. No. Being a freelancer is tough. You can make 5000 one week. You can make five, $5 the next week. Right. You know, what, is, what, what are some of the you know, highs and lows that, you know, that kept you going throughout that time? The chief thing always has been to do work that's challenging and satisfying to me. That's the key thing. And and then the second thing is, you know, can I make enough money doing this work that I want to do to live? Mm. And, you know, um, I have not made a lot of money. Uh, and as I, as I said before, you know, I'm beyond blessed to be married to a woman who has made money and who... Uh, has helped me keep my ass out of the street. Mm, mm, mm. And so, uh, you know, I appreciate the hell out of that. But, I mean, I don't know that I ever would have done anything different. You know, this uh, desire to do the work that I want to do on my own terms, you know, as as we've discussed already, you know, that's been baked into me since I was 20 years sure, old. Sure. I'm not, I'm not, you know, if... If uh, I hadn't married so well, if I hadn't been able to go to New York, um, I still think I'd be the same guy. I might, I, you know, if I'd never left Ann Arbor and I was running a record store there, at least it would be, you know, the kind of work that I want to continue to do. That's it. It's always been that way for me. And, and you know, I don't want to make it sound like, uh, you know, it's easy and that there hasn't been bumps, you know. It has been tough sometimes, and there have been bumps, and I have been fired from jobs, and I have quit jobs, and, you know, I've moved from one city to another. Um, And, you know, having said all of that, I wouldn't do anything differently. Nothing. You know, because, you know, the work itself has been so satisfying. The journey, as you you said, has been, you know, satisfying. Throughout the, uh, you know, talking about the journey, some people don't take a, a moment or a time to embrace the journey. You know, and, and and next thing you know, we're sitting here. And, I'm going to tell you something. Yeah. You know, I'd be, uh, you know, I might have been inclined this way anyway, but there was a period a dozen years ago when the Reverend Run was issuing his daily word uh, mm. by email. He sent out an email blast every While day. While he was in the bath. While he was in the bath. I actually, you know, that, 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 by the, that was a little bit later. He started, you know, sending out the daily word even before he was on television with his own show. But... Uh, so he'd make up, you know, some little inspirational nugget and send it out every doggone day. Uh, some of the things he came back to over and over again, some of the things that, that he espoused weren't original with him. One of the things that killed me that somehow I'd never figured out before was count your blessings. 
And he'd come back to that over and over again. And big. That's really, really big in my life. You know, focus on what all is wonderful in your life. Enumerate them. Enjoy them. Mm. And instead of focusing on what you don't have, you know, and, you know, that's, I think probably I've, I've mostly been built that way, but, you know, run, help me focus. I'm still that way. I'm, I'm that way today. I'm happy right now to be in an air conditioned room. Mm. I'm happy to be in good health. I woke up this morning and had a bowl of oatmeal. Easy. Mm. Mm. You know, apple cinnamon. Uh, no, uh, thank you for asking. No, I had some uh, some uh, blueberries and bananas on it. And and, was, uh, sounds beautiful. Beautiful. Blessed. It's the fucking little things in life, Bill. Well, or it's, or it's not so little. It's, this is life. Sure. You know, so, you know, I, I understand in hip-hop, you know, it's really one of the, the, you know, it's understandable to me, but it's it's not the most sympathetic thing about hip-hop is, is the materialism that has basically been ba- baked into it almost from the very beginning. But certainly, you know, by the time, you know, Jay-Z comes around uh, and, and P. Diddy and them, you know, in, in, the, in the 90s, you know, it, it's like nothing is more important than the accumulation of wealth. It's retarded. It's offensive to me as a fucking hippie. Mm. You know, the idea that, you know, nothing tops being wealthy and you can never have too much money, forget it. I've never been built that way. And, you know, counting my blessings, uh, as I'm, in, you know, inclined to do, you know, I understand that not only am I fine, I'm more than fine. I'm somebody who reads the newspaper. I'm somebody who watches television news, okay? I understand. You know, the world is in turmoil. Mm. You know, this country was in turmoil even before President Fuckface took office, Mm. (laughs) okay? You know, and the vast, vast majority of the people are nowhere near as privileged as I am. Am I a billionaire? I'm not. Do I need to be a billionaire? I don't. Mm, mm. I'm going to count my blessings. Let me tell you, uh, during your time at Def Jam, you uh, hired uh, so many different, tremendously talented photographers. Uh, You know, we spoke about it where Russell would say, hey, if you're looking for any pitches from, you know, the Def Jam Rush rush Management, ask Bill. You know, um, you've done so much work where people have legendary uh, clippings, articles, pictures, flyers. I mean, man, let me tell you something. You're you're an author, okay? Tougher than leather. Right. Uh, Def Jam 25 with the the homie uh, uh, Dan Charnist. Man, so many many things. And this may be a, a tough question to answer, but what are you most proud of, man? You've done author and you had your hand in so many different things. You've been able to live the life. That you love, what's what's some of these most memorable moments? I'm man? just you know I'm I'm happy about you know the accumulation of things. You know I'm happy that I've been able to uh, uh, stay creative and grow older. And you know looking back now, you know it 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 seems as if I've been productive. And so really, it's the entirety of, the, of of what I've managed to do over the course of my working life that that's very satisfying to me. Mm. You know, I, I could say, I mean, you know, it so happens. I mean, you know, if you want to talk about, you know, the, the, 
uh, collections I've put together. That's something I'm, I'm very proud of, of that, you know. To Tell ha- us about that. You know, I'm somebody, you know, um, I've always had a sense about, of, of history. Uh, and that's relatively rare in America. You know, the great thing about America is, you know, we've always been kind of what's next, what's new. And that inclination is a creative in- inclination. You're not content with what happened before. Fuck the past. We're going to create something brand new right now. That's the story of America in a nutshell. Do, sure. we need, do we need England or Spain or France? Fuck all of them. We're going to build something brand new on a new continent. Mm. Okay? That's the American thing. Good. But, um, you know, I think, you know, I grew up, you know, I, I was subscribing to Downbeat Magazine as a teenager in high school. And so they're going to cover the jazz scene as it happens at that point. But also they had a historical perspective about the great artists, some of whom were still uh, uh, working at that time, but who predated that moment. And that was interesting to me. Or go earlier. You know, listen, you know, uh, I'm somebody, you know, I listened to the Beatles in 64, 65, and they didn't always write their own songs. They're tremendously influenced by everything that predates them. I found out about Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Carl Perkins through the Beatles. Mm. All they had to do was record it. And I'm saying, well, wait a minute. Who's C. Berry? Mm. You know, I take a look at the composer credit, you know, and that's interesting to me. And I never felt, well, you know, it's old, so why should I care about it? You go back and listen to Chuck Berry today in 2018, and it'll take the top of your head off. Mm. What a great fucking writer. Singer, guitarist. So I had that kind of historical sense always. And, you know, when I started writing about music, and I'm 20 years old, and, you know, my particular interest was uh, music out of the African-American tradition. And, you know, if, if Bobby Blue Bland is coming to town, you know, and I've got the new record and I've got the bio that the label uh, sent me, but... You know, that's just, you know, kind of the the present moment. What if I want to learn more about him so that when I write something, I don't appear to be an idiot? You know, let me write something informed. Well, guess what? You know, there weren't a ton of wonderful reference works then. There was no Internet. Yes, young people, there was a time when there was no Internet, okay? No Instagram. No Instagram. Nothing, right? And so, you know, you didn't have the world's knowledge at your fingertips. And so, you know, at that point, really as a 20-year-old or a 22-year-old something, I started to collect some of the stuff that would, you know, the, the, the stuff that, that really, it's, it's ephemera. You know, um, I'd, I'd hold on to the record label's um, bio. I'd hold on to the, uh, the publicity photo. You know, if, um, you know, somebody in Detroit wrote a review that seemed smart to me, I'd clip it and hold on to it. I began to build files on the artists that I cared about. So I'd been doing that for 10 years when I started working with Russell. By the time I started working with Russ in 84, I've got files on all of his artists. I've got these kind of press files on his artists that he doesn't have. Russell fucking, Russell is one of those guys, what's next? He could give a fuck about something that happened before. Doesn't care, okay? I'm somebody who said, Russ, you do you, okay? When the time comes, when LL Cool J puts out a second album, some people are going to be coming to him for the first time. For those folks, 
I can provide some context. I'm thinking of it from a writer's perspective. Sure. Okay. Sure. You know, do I just want a record review? Okay, record review. That's, you know, uh, 400 words. Okay. If I can convince the writer uh, that there's an artist who made the record and the artist's story is engaging, all of a sudden there's a 2,000 word feature in the newspaper. Okay. So that's, that's the way my thinking went. And so I continued to build you know, these, these files. I mean, there was a wonderful movie that came out. I want to recommend to everybody. It came out, I think just last year and it's called Obit. And it's a documentary about, you know, the, the uh, staff of writers who write obituaries at the New York times. And it's a great story. I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> I don't know if you have to get older to care about obits in the times, you know, um, I think the older you get, the more inclined you are to read that kind of thing. Sure, sure. Because, you know, you can see your own den coming. Sure. But, uh, you know, <laughs> you know it's, it's like sport, the sport pages for, uh, sports pages for old folks. You know, you're going to read the old bits every day. So, um, you know, I care about it anyway because I'm devoted to the old bits in the times. But at one point they go down, they're, they're puddling around, and, and they go to a room. It's in a basement somewhere, I think. And... There's one guy down there, and it looks, it really, it literally looks dusty as hell. It's kind of hard to see what the, what is it? What is it, right? But it's just a, a room the size of a football field with file drawers and file cabinets in it, okay? And it is known as the morgue. And it's something that all newspapers used to have. It's basically, it's a library of press clippings organized by subject, Right. And when, and and somehow I never figured it out as long as I've been doing what I've been doing. I never thought that what I'd done is create my own kind of morgue. I'd created a morgue devoted to the the um, the subjects, subjects that I'm most interested in. And. You know, it's it, you know, it, 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 I'm not. I guess I was kind of un- unconsciously influenced by the example of, you know, I'd never seen a morgue before. I started working at the Boston Herald in, you know, full time in 1978. They had a morgue. I used it. Mm. You know, if I'm writing about, you know, whoever it is that's come to town and I want to, you know, get some more information to, to back myself up. I walked into the morgue and looked at the file and I was good. You know, I worked for People magazine in the early 80s. So that's owned by Time Life, which at the time was, you know, like the towering icon of American magazine journalism, okay? And, you know, did I have to, you know, what, what, whatever, what was I writing about for them? Didn't make any difference. You know, I call the library. I call the morgue. What do you got on whoever it was? You know, I did a story on Luther Vandross, okay? What do you got on Luther Vandross? Oh, my God. They sent me a file four inches thick. Mm. So that's the kind of thing that I've done, you know, for hip hop. And, uh, you know, this whole long story I've just told, it's, it's just a way of saying that, you know, I've kind of always thought this way. And I understand it's relatively rare to have a sense of history, and particularly vis-a-vis hip-hop, because in, you know, uh, capital H historical terms, hip-hop is brand new. It's brand new, okay? It happened, you know, in the summer of 2015. I sold a collection 
of hip-hop-oriented photos to the uh, National Museum of African American History and Culture, which had not yet opened. It didn't open up until a year later in the fall of 2016, okay? And the curator there, Rhea Combs, bought this collection of hip-hop photos that I'd exhibited when I had a a hip-hop art gallery in Manhattan between 2003 and 2007. I hadn't been able to sell anything. I shut down the gallery at the end of 2007. I put all the photos in a drawer, okay? Eight years later, this new museum jumps up and says, you know, we're kind of interested in this, and they bought it. I tell the whole story to say they're very, very avant-garde in 2015 to demonstrate an interest in these materials and to basically to put their imprimatur on them and say, guess what? This hip-hop stuff, these photos, okay, that's African-American history and American history and music history. That's what the purchase of those materials meant. Guess what, though? 2015? I've been, I, you know, to me, I mean, I love Rhea. She's incredible. She's very avant-garde. You know, uh, given the kind of job that she has, I, I sure. you know, I would love to have been a fly on the wall when she's trying to talk to her colleagues about, you know, buying this collection for the museum. OK, but as we said, you know, in in actual on the ground terms, in terms of uh, the impact of hip hop, it started to have a global impact 40 years ago. The first hip hop records. You know, you know, the the way that it, you know, let's say it was a a local phenomenon strictly, you know, New York. okay, between whatever it was, 1972, 1973 and 1979. In 1979, the first rap records come out and they're global hits. Go back and, you know, (laughs) go online and check it out. You will find that the Sugar Hill Gang had uh, hit records, you know, on local charts in a dozen other countries in places where they didn't speak fucking English. So 40 years of history for hip-hop, and now, you know, it seems like academia and various institutions are agreeing that, you know, this hip-hop stuff is of, you know, capital H historical value, value, capital C cultural value, on and on and on. And it's tremendously gratifying to me to have, you know, had an inkling that this might be true sort of as it was happening and to hold on to it and to, and to be able to pass it on. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. You know, what else do you have that you're working on now? You got um, any more books? Uh, I'm not working on any more books right now. Documentaries? Uh, yeah, I'm working on a documentary um, with my friend Josh Swade. Um, it's devoted to uh, the hip-hop photographer, Mr. Ricky Powell. Mm, legendary Ricky's a legend um, and you know we're having a lot of fun doing it uh, you know we're gonna we're basically done with production we're gonna well we're done shooting it we're gonna start editing pretty shortly I imagine the thing will come out next year mm-hmm. what else uh, do you got going on what is that don't you have um, what um, not museum stuff not the, what else not the, the story you just explained but don't you have something else uh, going on well you know one of the things that I'm also excited about is you know in, in 2013 I sold, I sold the collection to Cornell University yes and that was um, newspaper and magazine articles and, and uh, publicity photos and, and a variety of other materials uh, like that all of it you know it you know it, it, again it's ephemera which is to say it's basically built to be disposed of. It's not built to last. It's ephemeral. 
You know, it's supposed to dissolve. And so, you know, I held on to that stuff for the reasons that I've already described. And, you know, uh, Cornell, which has had already established a hip hop collection, um, you know, decided they liked what I had done. And when I sold it to them, you know, I really only had kind of one stipulation about it. And that was uh, you must agree to digitize these materials and put them online. Uh, because, you know, Cornell, I don't know how many folks listening have ever been on the Cornell campus. It's in Ithaca, New York, and it's absolutely magnificent. It's really, uh, it's a world-class university. It's an Ivy League university. It's beautiful. And, um, but again, it happens to be in Ithaca. And so, you know, if you want access to, you know, anything there, including my collection right now, for the most part, you know, you have to go to Ithaca, New York. Guess what? It's four hours from anywhere. <clears throat> so I knew that going in, and I thought to myself, you know, uh, the Internet is better known really as the World Wide Web, okay? And anybody anywhere with a, a computer and a, and a connection can have access to knowledge everywhere and culture everywhere. So please, hip-hop is global culture. Let my collection be available to anybody who has access to a computer. And they've agreed to it. And it's going slowly, but, um, you know, it's going. And so you can find a sliver of my collection on the Cornell website right now. And uh, that's gratifying. And, you know, they're, they're, you know, keeping their nose down. And I think, you know, much, much more of the collection will be online, uh, perhaps as soon as the end of this year and then next year and on and on. Hey, listen, the um, the late, great uh, Combat Jack, Reggie Ose, graduated from Cornell University. Oh, did he? Yeah. That's very much to his credit. Yeah, yeah. He he loved it. He loved wearing all the uh, hoodies from Cornell and, you know, showing off uh, all that, uh, you know, different type of hey, uh, it's, gear. Hey, it's, it's not easy. You know, it's it's basically like, like Harvard. You know, it's a, it's a slog getting yeah. through that. You better be bright as hell. Yeah. You know, you worked with, uh, you know— so many different artists throughout the years uh, wrote on so much different type of uh, uh, stuff. Even uh, I remember uh, hearing a story about uh, boycott and the Grammys yeah. uh, that you push. Could you tell internets who don't know about that story? Could you tell them that story? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're 73 minutes into this thing right now. Do you really, I mean, it's, a, it's another long story. I, I, I'll tell a, I'll tell tell a short, short, a short version go. of it. There we go. The short version is, so um, uh, in 88... Uh, the Grammy Awards decided, you know, for the first time that they would, uh, uh, they'd have a category for the best rap single is what I think it was. And there were five nominees named, and uh, I think three of them were our artists, or maybe maybe it's just two. It was LL Cool J and, and uh, Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. And, um, you know, we're very excited at first, and then they, they announced that there's going to, you know, the, the broadcast is going to happen uh, the best records of 88, you know, the broadcast is going to be in, in whatever, February of, of 89. And um, they didn't want, they weren't going to uh, broadcast the awarding of the best rap single on air. And we thought that's retarded. 1988, I mean, you know, we knew we'd had a great year. You look back now, 1988 is like, you know, one of a handful of golden years in the history of hip-hop. You know, I'm not even going to bother talking about, you know, all the magnificent things that happened in that year. But wait a minute. After this kind of year, 
we don't get to take a bow? Mm. You know, you're going to keep us, you know, you're just, it, it, whatever. It, it was, it, it felt to us like an insult. Sure. It felt to me like an insult, mm. I mm. must say. And so I talked to the artist and I talked to Russ and, you know, I said, we're boycotting. And Russell said, go ahead and do it. And so we, <laughs> we boycotted and caused a kind of a ruckus. And, um, you know, I don't know, you know, kind of what the ongoing effect was, you know, on the Recording Academy. But, um, you know, it, it, it felt like, you know, it felt like the right thing to do at the time. It was kind of a 60s thing to do during the hip-hop era. <clears throat> Let me tell you something. You were able to make the long story to a short one. Okay. I'll tell you. I'll tell you one thing, Bill. One episode is tough to even do with you, man, because you have such a. I I wanted to go over Rick Rubin. Um, Great man. Yeah, you know. Um, there's just so much. You know. You know. One thing I will say that's amazing is is you have contributed so much to this culture, um, on so many different levels. You you know what I love I love people like you. And when I say that is you know the times, the dates, the years. Uh, an amazing storyteller, man. And oh, thank you. No, no, I mean that. I mean that. And, and when I've sat down with so many people, uh, not everybody remembers everything. I understand. And, I know and, that. And 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 when and, and when you do it like that, it's 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 amazing. Well, it's my pleasure. It's amazing. Thank you for having me. Anything else you want to leave the internets with? I don't know. You know, I, you know, I, actually, actually, okay, good. I was going to say, you know, I, I could be, you know, you know, this could be like a moment where I'm a, uh, you know, it's, it's a graduation speech for a bunch of college kids. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm doling out my hard earned wisdom as an elder. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's kind of too cliched. Um, I will say, you know, the biggest cliche of all, because uh, I think it's valuable. I will say, um, follow your heart. Mm -hmm. And I say that understanding that uh, a lot of people, you know, never inquire of their heart what means the most to them. If you ask, you know, most folks on the street, what do you love to do? What makes life worth living to you? You'd take, you'd take most of them by surprise because they've never asked themselves that question. So my advice would be to ask yourself that question and then to act on it. Mm. Bill Adler, you know, before, before we end this, I'm going to ask you one more question. Uh-oh. Because writing still matters. Yeah. Uh, you know. So does reading. Yeah. Uh, actually, having said that, any uh, books uh, do you recommend for people to read? Wow, I feel dumb. Oh, what are you reading right now? Or what? You, you know, know what I'm reading right now? Yeah. And, you know, truthfully, you know, I don't read, um, I'm not proud to say this, but I don't read so very many books these days. I read all the time, but mostly it's newspapers. Actually, I've got an idea for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this live on air. Um, one of my favorite writers is John Caramonica. Yes, of the, from of, the New York Times. Of the New York Times. And, um, you know, I'll read whatever he writes about, and, and he writes on a whole variety of subjects, but he also writes all the time and dependably about hip-hop, and um, he's brilliant. And you should book him onto your show. We, I, I've sat down with him with Reggie before, and uh, you know what? I, I've been wanting to, and I'm going to reach out to him again. 
Because the one and only Bill Adler said so. Well, but you know, I, I'm telling you, you know, he's a, hey, listen, he's 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 magnificent. Yes, and and he can talk on a variety of subjects, and and also he's much more uh, uh, knowledgeable about what's happened in the past twenty years in hip hop than I am. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, what else were we talking about? Your favorite book, or what oh yeah, you're reading so I'm right reading now. a book right now. The, you know, so the, the rare book that I'm reading, I'll tell you two of them. Okay. <laughs> Actually, I can't even remember the name of, of one of them. Uh, I'll tell you the one that I can remember. You know, there was a brief period, you know, after I left Russ, and I, it's the mid-90s, and I have my, my own little business, and um, uh, I was friends with a guy named Wayne Kramer. Now, Wayne Kramer was a, a charter member of a band called the MC5. MC stands for Motor City, and they were a very important band. Their first album comes out in 1968. That's 50 years ago. And, uh, you know, actually, you'll folks will be hearing more about the MC5 starting in September, I think, because Wayne is going to go on tour. Uh, it's a 50th anniversary tour to mark the release of their first album. But um, he put out a book, and I just saw an advanced copy of the book, and I'm, I'm reading that now. And, you know, I'm, I'm digging it. There was a period in the 90s. When, you know, I'd, I'd known Wayne for a while. I didn't know him in Detroit, but I got to know him in Boston. And then I'm in New York, and he was in New York. And we're hanging out, and he says, Bill, why don't you manage me? And I thought, why? You know, because uh, having worked for management company, sure. I knew that I, I, you know, did I want to be an artist manager per se? I didn't. It's thankless. And I don't sure. want to get a, fo- a phone call from jail at 4 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. No, you know, somebody else can do that. There's not enough money in it for me. It's too much. Sure, sure. It's way too, too much m- headache. Surus, a Jew. It's would a babysitting. Say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want it. And so, um, but Wayne says, you know, would you would you manage me? And I said, uh, okay, you know. And so, you know, I got to know him better then, and I did the best I could for him, which wasn't very good. You know, eventually I left, and and he ended up. He had a girlfriend, and uh, she was great. And uh, he he married her, and she's managed him ever since, and she's done a wonderful job, Margaret. So, boom, uh, that's a book I'm reading right now. It's a book about uh, Wayne Kramer and his career in the MC5. Mm. Before that, I'm trying to remember the name of this book. I bought a... God damn... I'm really mad. I can't think of it. After I gave you such a good compliment on how much you could remember shit, you know now what? you forget Mr. Adler? You're right. You're exactly right. I'm reading a book. Oh, I think this is it. I can remember the name of the author. His name is Charles Keel, K-E-I-L. And he wrote a book about the blues, and it was published in 1965. And I picked up a uh, a used copy of it at a flea market, and I've been reading it. And it's one of the smartest books I've ever read, not just about the blues per se, but about the sociology of the blues, which is to say, you know, the African-American community. Sure. And also super smart about the music business at that time. And, um, you know, somehow I haven't finished the book. It's not so very lengthy, but I like every single page of it. Mm. It's mm. still resonant as hell. And, you know, what does that have to do with hip hop? You know, I don't know. But that's, you asked me about a book I'm reading. Sure, that's a book I'm reading. You know, that, so. Listen, that's it. Uh, let's see if we can get the last uh, question on a short one Writer's block. Everybody's different. Have you ever got it? And how the fuck do you get out of it? Well, to anybody know, listening? Well, you know, I really haven't suffered from it very much, and you know maybe that's uh, uh, kind of an indictment of my lack of ambition. You know, the, the, 
you know, are the things that I've tried to write. Uh, I haven't tried hard enough to challenge myself. You know, why haven't I written a novel? You know, um, you know, could I write a novel? Probably not. Um, but you know, again, my writing career has been like the rest of my career. You know, the, the things that I've written about are things that are of interest to me, and you know, mostly I've I've generated my own assignments. And so, you know, when it comes time to write, you know, I I, I figure out some things to say. Mm, mm. Sorry. There's always a way. Internet. Sure. And, you know, I mean, having said that, you know, I, I really, I don't give myself so very much credit as a writer. You know, if, if I'd been a better writer, you know, I would have, uh, I never would have worked with Russell Simmons. Sure, sure. You know, if I, if I could have made a living as a, a full-time writer for magazines and newspapers about music and, and then, who knows, written full-length biographies and, and, and on and on, if I could have done that, I would have done it. But I'm telling you, I was basically starving when I started to work with Russ. And he says, you know, here, take a job with me. And I sure, said, sure. fine. Sure. Now we get it. You on Twitter or Instagram? Do you mess with social media? No. Okay. And God bless. Oh. I, you know, I, sometimes I wish I could say that. You're young. I know. I'm so old, I can just get away you're with it. You're not that fucking old. 66. It's all right. You're a good man. You know what? Listen, in internets, okay, check for his work. Go back in the you know history. Look at the books he, he, he that he. There uh, you go. Look at look read at read a book. Google Bill Adler and see how you could support him and whatever he's doing now with the documentaries, with the stuff in Cornell. Uh, Bill, again, thank you for all your contributions to the culture, to to the the things and shit that people love. Okay. Thank you, Premium Pete, for having me on. It's oh, been- and big shout out to Kether. Okay. Yeah, let's say let's say uh, uh, shout out to uh, to our friend Kether Galubadot. Yeah, uh, for connecting the dots, wanting us to sit down. He's a great man. You yeah. know, I mean, you know, when I ran this uh, uh, gallery in New York between 2003 and 2007, I had exactly one employee, and that was Kether, and the two of us did this work together, and we had a lot of fun, and we've remained friends ever since. Mm. It's good to hear those type of stories. Internet's the one and only, the legendary Bill Adler. See you next episode. Cheer. Internets, if you enjoyed that episode, I want you to email me at thepremiumpeatshow at gmail.com. Again, that email is thepremiumpeatshow at gmail.com. Let me know what you thought. And listen, all my advertisers out there, all my big businesses, my small businesses, whoever, a friend, a store, you want to advertise on the Premium Peach Show? Email me at thepremiumpeatshow at gmail.com and let's get working. Okay, make sure you subscribe, rate, leave a comment on all streaming platforms of the podcast. Tell a friend to tell a friend, and we'll see you next episode. Cheer.